Um, I have a feeling, you know, this is July the 2nd. Uh, John Adams wrote Abigail after the vote on July 2nd, telling her that July 2nd is going to be known throughout all the generations of America and celebrated. Well, he was two days off uh, because he thought the vote was going to be more important than people coming up and signing the declaration. But uh, here, here we are still celebrating July the 4th as a declaration of independence from Great Britain. Um, and, of course, I love history. History has always been one of my favorite subjects all the way through school and college, especially American history. And uh, 1776, this is, this is the month. This is when all of this kind of came together and the decision was made. Let's jump in the year prior, 1775. The Revolutionary War was already going on. Lexington and Concord was the first exchange of gunfire between the British soldiers who were here to occupy and, and to, uh, you know, keep order. But it became, there was tension over the Stamp Act and there was uh, back and forth. And <clears throat> the British heard that the colonial militia was gathering arms and, and uh, hiding Ammunition, so they went into Concord and Lexington upon their intelligence reports to find it and to confiscate it. Therefore, there was a conflict. Shots was fired. The first Americans were killed. The first British soldiers were killed, and it was on. We're talking about over a year before what they did in Philadelphia on July the 2nd, 1776. What was going on is the Second Continental Congress was deciding on a resolution by Richard Henry Lee, a delegate from Virginia, to declare our independence from Great Britain. Well, people was really, some delegates were a little antsy about that, so they made a committee of five people that included Adams and Jefferson and Sherman. Uh, if you're really good at this, you can name the other two off for me, but um, uh, Adams felt that Jefferson was the most brilliant uh, person to draft an official document so they nominated him and therein he was the one who drafted the Declaration of Independence. But they were considering it and there was going to be a vote on July the 2nd. One of the delegates from Delaware, Caesar Rodney, you might have heard this story if you've listened to David Barton. Uh, Caesar Rodney, there was three delegates from Delaware and uh, McKean was for the resolution uh, Reed was against the resolution, and they wanted it to be unanimous. So uh, McKean sent word, somebody sent a courier to tell Caesar Rodney, who was back in Delaware dealing with problems with loyalists, to hurry up and get there. So he did this famous 70-mile ride all night in a thunderstorm on horseback to get to Philadelphia in time to cast the deciding vote for Delaware, making it an unanimous decision. How about that? Not only was this uh, was a feat on his part, he also was suffering from um, a facial cancer that he had went through. All kind of painful procedures tried to rid him of that cancer. He later fell into ill health and passed away. But there was so much discussion and debate. Why would a, a delegate from Delaware vote against it? Well, there was other delegates that voted against it, but the colonies carried the majority. 
even after everything that was happening and going on, there were still people like, well, maybe we can still deal with Great Britain. Maybe we can just give them an olive branch. Maybe we can negotiate. And, and it was kind of underneath that atmosphere that Patrick Henry gave his great speech in a church building of all places. Um, give me liberty or give me death. says, what are we waiting on? We've waited, we've waited, we've waited. We're getting nowhere with the injustices. So you might not find this a, a very relevant introduction to a sermon today, but I can assure you I'm going to get to some scripture here in just a moment. In fact, I'm going to give you Proverbs uh, 14, I think verse 34, and it applies like a principle to nations. It simply says this, you know what it says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So... Was this the right decision? There was so much debate. There was, there was pastors of churches that stood in their pulpits saying, we should not go against our authority. We should submit to authority. The book of Romans tells us to submit to authority. So there was Christians on, on both sides of this saying, no, we, we just can't take what's going on anymore. And these were saying like, well, we, we just can't do that either. So in the midst of that, the decision was made to officially declare independence from Great Britain. Now, there were, there were still loyalists and Tories all through the land, especially in Delaware, North Carolina, um, just because of financial and economic issues that they were tied in with Great Britain. But they served as, as spies, so there's always this uh, division. You know, we look at our country today and we're like, hey, we've never been divided before. Yeah, we've been divided before many times. And this was not unanimous across the country to do this. But let me give you the date that's probably more important. It's October the 19th, 1781, at a place called Yorktown. And it's where Cornwallis, surrounded by the, the, the French and American forces, surrendered himself and the 8,000 soldiers that were with him officially ending the Revolutionary War. Anyone here track their genealogy back to anybody in the Revolutionary times, Revolutionary War? Anybody? Okay, you, you've got, uh, what? Okay. All right. Um, I've got, I'd have to use five greats. Five great, 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 have I got the five yet? Great grandfather, Peter Van Bibber III, was in the Revolutionary War. Um, and these people, look at what they did. They took on the world's greatest military, and most of them were not an accomplished mil militia. There were some that fought, like George Washington did, for England in the French-Indian War. So there was a little bit of experience, but most of the part, this was, this was like if there was gambling odds, on, on us being able to do that, they would be off the chart in favor of Great Britain. We just, many people in the world said we didn't have a chance. But there it happened in 1781, facing the strongest. But I think it goes back to, was this the right decision? And that's what I've titled this message this morning. Was this the right decision? Looking back, we said, well, it worked. But was it the right decision right then? Christ gives us in Matthew 6, 33, a guiding principle 
that we are to exercise when we're facing worries and anxieties. When he says, when you're concerned about what you're going to wear, what you're going to have, the things that you know of necessity, he makes this as the guiding principle that you should invoke when you're facing these kind of concerns and worries. And there's this word. This word showed up, Jim, many times in Sunday school, righteousness. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And if you stop right there and you go over to Romans 14, Paul tells the church at Rome that the kingdom of God is basically three components, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He said the kingdom of God is 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 a life with righteousness and with peace and with joy. And Jesus said, if you make the kingdom of God, that kingdom, his spiritual rule in your life, if you make that your priority, if you seek first that kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things would be added to you. I would think that that verse was in play in some way in how they looked at that decision. Is this the right thing to do? Is, do we have the principles on which to do what we're about to do? That was a lot of the discussion. Let's examine this in view of our nation, the birth of America and God's blessing. Remember what Proverbs 14 said. Righteousness exalts, lifts up a nation's sin pulls the nation down. Sin brings down integrity and character raises the constitution of a nation. There's two great pillars I'm going to give you this morning on not only for our nation but for the church. And righteousness is that first principle. The first pillar is that we got to have a righteous cause. We, we have to approach things through Christ's righteousness just like the nation did. Let me, uh, if you haven't read the Declaration of Independence lately, let me just give you the starting words because this is so uniquely connected to the book of Romans um, in the early chapters about the laws of nature and nature's God. But this is specifically given in the opening paragraph. This is what Jefferson penned. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with, with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. An absolute masterpiece. People that review what Jefferson penned. Now, Jeff, let me just put this advertisement. If you know, maybe maybe you don't care about American history, so tough. You're going to hear about it. There's two great books that uh, 1776 David McCullough that wrote about the whole year. It is a it is a wonderful book that kind of puts in context that whole year, everything that was happening with George Washington being the the commander of the forces and everything. But he also wrote a book called simply Adams. And David McCullough is a historian. He doesn't write with an edge or a slant on history. He just tells it the way it is. And it's a masterpiece. 
the Declaration of Independence cannot be improved upon. People look at that and say, could he have done better? Well, in fact, he did better because some of it was edited out by the delegates who didn't like some of it. And, of course, Adams thought that was horrendous. But listen to this. This is, this is all specified in the early statements of the Declaration. All men are created equal. And this coming from a man who is described as a deist, not a classical deist because he invokes different things, but a deist is supposed to be one who, who believes that God created the universe, but he wound it up like a clock and shoved it out into space and has nothing to do with it at all. It's just on the time, it's fatalism, it's whatever, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. That there's no such thing as miracles, and Jefferson didn't believe in miracles, but he truly wasn't a classical deist because he said all men are created equal. Not only that, this famous statement, in that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among them, not the totality of those rights, but among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He says governments were instituted to protect that. Government is a polity around that to make sure that people can pursue those rights in a free and liberated way. And he says when government impedes those rights or pulls some of them away from people, that it's time for people to look and either alter the government or replace it. And he does this by principles. The absolutes, life, liberty, and the pursuit of the fulfillment of people's lives. And it was people like Adams that saw injustice and couldn't, couldn't just look the other way. They just couldn't ignore that it wasn't happening. So a response was demanded from the essence of what they believed to be true. Toleration of wrong was just as unreasonable as the wrong itself. And I think sometimes we come to a place that if something's not touching us, it's none of our business. That it's not on our radar screen. And even though some of these people were personally affected by what was going on, they could see it. And wrong, or, or rather sin, had to be addressed. The injustice was never to be tolerated. And we try to teach our children that, right? Fairness. And we're having to get out our, our book on fairness again because we got our three grandkids with us. And, uh, you know, have these little moments. Well, was that, was that right for you to do that? No. I said, well, you need to apologize. I apologize. You know, something like that. I'm sorry. You know, well, that's very heartfelt. I really appreciate that. But it, it kind of, you, you, want, you want a rightness, right? That if you take something or you damage something that's not yours, that's not right. So you have to kind of instill these things. Frank Peretti's book, The Prophet, a great read, it kind of gives you the idea that God, who heard the innocent blood, the pain of the innocent blood of Abel crying out from the ground, how much does God hear the blood of the innocents today? If one man's blood cried out from the ground to God and God said this was unjust, this was 
not right, and to hold the person responsible for spilling that blood, I wonder what the moans and the cries from the ground of the earth is now in the ears of God. And this prophet was, was not a prophet to begin with, but he, he began to hear the groans and the cries of the injustice that was in the earth in the novel. I believe that we have to somehow hear the echo of that cry. We have to register in our own minds what the colonists heard that provoked them to take this kind of a step, a radical step. They could have reg- reckoned that, well, if we just keep our mouths shut and we don't, and we don't get in trouble with the redcoats, you know, they'll leave us alone. But the opposite was what the signers of the Declaration of Independence, they saw and heard the gross injustices And this is what Jefferson does afterwards. He just starts listing the things that the king of England had done. Listen to what he wrote here. Now, I don't think Jefferson was a hawk or a warmonger, but listen to what he says. When a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute depotism, it is their right, it is their duty It's not only the right to address it, it is a responsibility to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain, even though he never mentions King George by name, he refers to him that is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny. He uses tyrant tyranny four times, Jefferson does, in this declaration script. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. In other words, it was just not enough to say that there was wrong. He listed the things that the king of England had perpetrated upon the colonies. You know, um, uh, King George was, uh, for what I understand, a very a good man. Um, he was born in a very, uh, his health as a child was suspect, but he was in royalty. And he was like in his 20s, I believe, when he became king of England. And the day he met his wife, he married her. It was one of those arranged things. They had 15 kids. He was uh, married for 50 years, ruled, and, and was an honorable man. But somehow he turned against the colonies. And this is what Jefferson said, we, we can't tolerate this. He weighed, this is some of the things he said. He raised war against human nature. Let me point out that what I'm about to tell you, you will not find in the Declaration of Independence. Because this was cut out. <laughs> this was a Large paragraph cut out. This was Jefferson's original rough draft. So listen clearly and you'll see what item he was addressing. He said, the king of England has waged war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended them, offended him, 
captivating and carrying them into slavery into another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This warfare of an infidel powers is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this commerce. You know what I'm talking about? Slavery. In other words, it seems like the colonies tried at some point to stop it, but it was too much of a, a lucrative business to halt it, and it took all those years in a civil war to do away with something so unjust, so wrong, now, they cut this out of the Declaration of Independence. But can you imagine if they embraced this, what our different history would be? Let me ask you this. While the action to declare independence was a just and right act, was this right? No, it wasn't right. It wasn't right to carve this out when even Jefferson, who owned slaves, felt like they needed to address it and to stop it. Now, you won't hear this probably very much, but you, when you look into it, he says this, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injuries. We're speaking of righteousness. It exalts a nation, sin reproaches, and America suffered greatly. And in a way, we still have some of the vestiges of that suffering. It was sin. It was wrong, still wrong, no matter where it's practiced. Human trafficking is wrong. Killing of the innocent and defenseless is wrong. So righteousness, a righteous cause, elevates a nation. Here's the second pillar. It's that closing statement, that last line in the Declaration. You know what the last line is? And for the support of this Declaration, and with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, can you complete it? Our fortunes and our sacred honor. A firm reliance this is, this is, again, you just can't say Jefferson was writing from this God that's a distance away. A firm reliance on divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other this call for unity, this solemn pledge that whatever is ahead of us, whatever is in front of us, no matter how painful it gets, how difficult it gets, we're in this together. Carl Becker, who's a historian, calls this closing statement, a perfect, there's, it's, it's the ultimate perfection. He said, it's true. Assuming that men value life more than property, which is maybe doubtful, that the statement violates the rhetorical rule of climax. But it was a sure sense that made Jefferson place lives first and fortunes second. He said, even if you change the listing of these three things, it distorts and takes away from the magnitude of it. How much weaker, Becker writes, if he had written our fortunes, our lives, and our sacred honor. 
It's almost like you would put whatever cost is going to be than the life principle that's involved. Or suppose him to have used the word property instead of fortunes. Or suppose him to have omitted sacred. Consider the effect of omitting any of the words such as the last two hours. Our lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. But yet he emphasizes this our dynamic. Our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. He said, no, the sentence can hardly be improved upon. I'm almost finished. The only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence was John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon came from England to become the president of Princeton. He retired as the president of Princeton University in 1774, and two years later, he was a delegate at the Second Continental Congress signing the Declaration of Independence. He was such a strong, he was a, he was a preacher, he was a clergyman, he was, and he had such a strong view of what needed to be done. In one of those disagreements, a gentleman who was opposed to this declaration said, we're not really ripe for a declaration of independence. Witherspoon responded, sir, in my judgment, the country is not only ripe for the measurement, but in danger of rotting for the want of it. Five months after he signed the Declaration of Independence, the British overran his house and burned his entire library down. So I, I don't know how much books means to you, but I imagine back then books were like very valuable. How important is unity? Isn't it interesting that after Jefferson lists all the things that causes us to have this day, this week. And I, I, I enjoy the fireworks. You know, it kind of rained on Colin last night. I don't know if they got the full blast in, but I enjoy the fireworks. It's great. Isn't it a great celebration, July the 4th? But the fireworks ought to be our appreciation for what we received as beneficiaries of that. Our gratefulness for the country we have. It's not a perfect country our nation has a lot of issues a lot of problems but the church is called upon more more times than not when jesus prayed for the disciples father make them one make them one not a collection of just individuals but let them mesh together and he uses this as the example as you and i are one the the arrangement of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He says, make them one like we are one. Bring apart, heal, remove every divisive tone out of their lives. Let them come together as one. He prayed, Father, make them one. And I think it's a good prayer for us to say, Lord, make us one. We can complain and criticize our country. But I think our focus should be on what the church can do and what the church should be and that we pledge together ourselves in the same kind of mutual pledge because of the calamity of America's got sin. America's not a perfect country. There's, there's no defense for some of the things that's happening in our nation. The loss of life, the injustice, all, all the things that you see and read but the church cannot let that 
filter into our sentiments and, and kind of damage and taint our desire to see the kingdom of God come. One of the songs that, that was, uh, we worshiped with, and Michael, I was telling Michael about it, is a song that youth camp, some of you guys at youth camp probably recognize that song. I've seen you move the mountains. I've seen you move, O oh Lord, but I want to see it again. Have you seen the mighty move of God in your life? Have you seen times of revival? You want to see it again? I think this, is, this should be our pledge today. Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, they, they pledged everything they were, everything they had. We lay it all on the line. Lord, whatever it takes, how much intercession, how much uh, crying out to you, being your people, committing ourselves to you, giving ourselves up for your kingdom, Lord, becoming true worshipers, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and body so that he can mesh us together. I don't know, no matter what, you're, what group you're in, the strength of that group is in its cohesiveness. Unit cohesiveness. That's, that's one of the great military terms. You've got to have unit cohesiveness. And if any one part of that unit is an anomaly that doesn't share the completeness of that, that unit is weaker. And what we need to say, Lord, I don't want to be a weak link. I want to be that meshing part to see the, the move of your Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me this morning? The praise team comes back up and for us to just pray. I was privileged to be in Russia, I guess collectively, for about a month on two different trips. September of 2000, Leon Clay and some of us went to Russia and worked on a church building up in Alexandrov. And that visit landed me about a four-week stay in Russia the next year to teach in Habaras. And I remember asking Bishop Valentine to pray, and when he was praying, I said, would you pray for America? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He looked like, well, what, do, what does America need? <laughs> he, he saw America from a different view. I said, well, we need prayer. We need God to do something in our nation. And it was just a few months after that, 9-11 took place, and we really did need prayer, didn't we? But the Russian people love America. You know, no, I've been there. They, the, the vast majority of them want to talk to you and, and ask you about it. And they, you're like a rock star. They just want to have time with you. And, you know, it really kind of reoriented my time because I'm, you know, the Soviets are the enemy. You know, we need to beat them in ice hockey, running, jumping, basketball, everything that we, we got to beat them. We got to beat them. They're the enemy. And it was such a difference for me to see that they didn't see us that way. But for us to face what we're going to face in the days ahead, I think it takes a new commitment to say, God, I want to see you do something great again. I want to see God do something great again. I'm just not okay with God doing something great again. 
I want to be passionate about seeing God do something great again. And we're going to pray for our nation today. Near the birthday of our country, I want us to come and stand around this front as an altar, and I want us to cry out for America, cry out for our nation. And in in coming, Lord, I present my life to you as a part of this church, as a part of your church, Lord. I want to be part of a move of your spirit. So as we sing this, let's just have a closing prayer right up here.